0: Our Father, I have one sermon to preach, and that is Christ and Him crucified. I pray that you would help that message be made clear through all of my weakness, through all of our weaknesses, as we have ears that are, that are struggle to hear. Pray that your Spirit would overcome all the obstacles that are here this morning and give us a clear sight of Of Christ crucified. We pray in his name. Amen. In September of 2007, Randy Pausch was a professor at Carnegie Mellon University. He had received a cancer diagnosis, was given three to six months to live. And so he, the beloved professor at the school, gave what they called his last lecture. It was Randy Pausch's Last lecture. There were a few people that could not attend. And so they decided to video record the lecture. And they posted it to a little thing called YouTube And for the people that weren't there. And the thing went viral. 10 million views later. There was a book. There, the, he, he, it was a phenomenon. I, I, I looked at it this, this past week. It was like more than 20 million views on this, on this lecture. And the idea was this here's a man at the end of his life giving his last lecture, his last words to the world. What was he going to say? And and the lecture was really achieving your childhood dreams. And people loved the lecture because when a person reaches the end of their life, there's there's an insight, there's clarity that comes, a focus that just isn't there when we feel as though we're decades removed from death. And so the, the message resonated. Now, Jesus, these words that Jesus just spoke, Jesus is at the end of his life. Days away, in days, he will be, he will be upon a cross, dying for the sins of the world. And this is his last lecture in John's gospel. This is, the, this is his last message to the world. And this right here completes his public ministry. From this point forward, it's going to be trials, it's going to be prayers, it's going to be conversations with his disciples, last suppers with his disciples. This is the end. The last lecture for Jesus in John's gospel. And it's very familiar stuff. John, in this last message that Jesus gives, John kind of puts together all the things that Jesus has been talking about. Remember how we described John's gospel, his prologue? He introduced, his prologue in John chapter 1 is the gospel of John, concentrate. Remember the old juice concentrate? And John, what he's done in the gospel is he's dumped that frozen concentrate into a pitcher. And he's just been stirring it and letting those themes that concentrate work itself out through John's gospel. And all of a sudden, right here, he brings it all back into focus. All He concentrates the whole message right here again in this sermon that Jesus gives. And so we're going to consider, So it's very familiar stuff, but we're going to consider it, we're going to try to answer two questions. Why in the world should we listen to Jesus' last lecture? And then the second thing is, what does he say? He answers both of those for us here, and so let's, let's jump in. Why, why should we listen to what he says? Why should we listen to his last lecture? And what does he say? Look at verse 44. Jesus cried out and said... Now, there's no particular audience. He's not speaking to the crowds. It's a general declaration to the world, to all people, to humanity, to you, to me, to you, to us. And it's a cry. He cries out. He pleads. Listen to me. I am your creator. I have a message for you. Now, you may say, well, but isn't everyone crying for our attention? Everybody has a message. Everybody wants your ear. Did you know that? Businesses want your ear. Advertisers want your attention. Medical professionals seek our attention. Entertainers seek our attention. Politicians are asking for our attention. Our ear, right? It's this cacophony of messaging that comes our way. Who do we listen to? Who do we give our attention to? Why should we listen to this man? And here, the question's even more pressing because, we said this before, as Os Guinness points out, we live in an anything but Christian era, an ABC era. We're happy to kind of consider anything but Christianity. We've been there. We've done that. We don't need more of that. Look at verse 44 again. So Jesus cries, he pleads with the crowds, and he says, Whoever believes in me Believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Here's the reason we should listen to him. The first reason. Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter turned teacher, turned healer, is actually the creator of the universe. Belief in Jesus is belief in the Father, the creator Seeing Jesus is actually seeing God. He's the image of the invisible God. He, he's not just a man on the cusp of death, like Randy Pausch delivering his last lecture with a few little insights. This is, this, these, his words are tethered to the Creator. They, they are, he is Creator. It's the Creator's words coming to the world. And look, look at what he says, verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. I speak what the Father commands me to speak. And because I speak on the authority of the Almighty, look at verse 46. I have come into the world as light, as one who reveals the way the world is. So that whoever believes in me doesn 't remain in darkness now, I, we had the privilege of being at a, at a really beautiful old one of the oldest homes in, in Oklahoma City last night. It was a beautiful home, and we were getting a tour and um, the, and, and, and the tour was nice let 's imagine though that we 're in this this old home, and there were architectural uh, the, the actual original architectural renderings were there with little handwritten notes. It was framed. It was, it was really neat to see. Now let's imagine you're in a home like this. It's very old, built in the, more than a hundred years ago. And you're walking around. It's very well designed. It's, it's architecturally, it's beautiful. It's a great space. But there's some confusing aspects to it. There's some things that you don't understand. Why did they do this here? And why is this here? Now let's imagine that the builder and architect of that home came into it came back from the dead and said, let me show you around. Wouldn't that be an interesting moment? You could get insight. Why is this done this way? And there'd be, there'd be an explanation. What John is saying is, we live in God's house. Creation is God's construction. It is his building. And our life here in this world Brings up a lot of questions. It's clear that it's designed. It's beautifully and wonderfully made. It's stable. It's secure. It provides for our needs in large part. But there's suffering. There's difficulty. There's things that perplex us. And what John is saying is, your creator has come. And he's showing you around. He's explaining the world. The Greeks are right. The world does have a designer, an architect. There is a... a a logos that holds it all together, a design, but it's not abstract force, as the Greeks believed. The logos became flesh. The logos became flesh. And here he is speaking to us. Jesus is not just the architect of the world we live in. He's not just the builder. He's actually the frame. He's the nails. He's the one who holds it all together. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of all creation. And this is why we listen. This is why we listen to him. We live in a sea of lies, don't we? I mean, think about social media was supposed to kind of open up the channel of communications and create free-flowing speech so that we could all have a better understanding of our world. It's, It's created massive confusion. Nobody knows what to believe. Nobody believes anything. You can't trust this or that. or, or the lies. The, the result of, of speeding up our communication and making it more available has created just a, whirl, a whirlwind of lies. So Christ comes in. And by the way, social media is not doing, it's not, it's not that we're any different. It's just amplifying what we do. It's speeding up what we do. We live in a sea of lies. And John is saying, light has come. Truth has come into those who remain in darkness. And, uh, John Calvin said, if all the wisdom of the world were gathered into one, not a spark of true light would be found in that huge heap. Now, as we bring this first question, why listen to a close, I want, I want to I want to just give you another image. Let's, let's pretend again that we're living in an old home. It's a beautiful home, that we, we are living there. Uh, or family. Let's just say a family lives there. And the family is facing foreclosure. It's a sad reality. And so what they do is they spring to action. They take second and third jobs in this desperate attempt to save the home. But what they don't realize is that tucked away in their attic is a dusty old box and contained within that box is is what seems to be just junk. It's just a bunch of things and within the box there's this framed picture and underneath the picture is an original Rembrandt painting valued at $20 million. Not only would the treasure contained in that dusty old box save the family home, it it would set the family up for generations. That home is our public life, is kind of life in the world as we know it. And we, as a culture, feel as though it's slipping away, don't we? And the box containing the treasure is the Christian tradition. It's Christ, our faith. And by and large, the world says, eh, it's a dusty old box. It's just something we've got to get rid of. We've got to throw it in the trash heap. But what John is saying is, no, there's a treasure here. There is a treasure in Christ. We should listen second second consideration or question to answer is what, is, what does he actually say? What is he actually saying that 's why we should listen to what he says, but now let 's look at what he says now let 's go back to the early days of, of YouTube again. There were these Jesus dubbed videos that came out very early on, and it was uh, as I understand it, it was Christians that put these together, and they presented uh, these old Jesus movies and they dubbed over a voiceover of Jesus being just nitpicky, obnoxious judge. He would show up to the disciples and say, well, all right now, it's time for me to tell you all what you've done wrong since I last saw you. John, you you drank too much wine, not way too much, but enough to make me angry. Matthew, I saw you dancing too closely to that lady. Peter, it's okay to say my name, but not after you hit your thumb with a hammer. And, and, and the idea was, this is, this is how we think of, this is the Jesus of our imaginings. This guy that's walking around just nitpicking, judging everything we do and say. But that's not, that's not the Jesus we get here. That's not what John is recording here in his gospel. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is showing us who Jesus is and what Jesus says. And so what does he say? Look at, look at verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Christ came to save, not to judge the world. His, his, his telos, his goal in his ministry was to seek and to save the lost. And this is, remember, Reformation Sunday. This is the big question of the Re- Reformation. How can a person be saved? How can a person be saved? And Luther, remember, wrestled with that question. He 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 was tormented by that question. He would flog himself based on that question. Am I doing enough to be saved before God Almighty? And the thing that freed him from his torment was Romans 1.16, where Paul says that in the gospel, in the good news of Christ, the righteousness of God has been revealed to those who by faith receive. We we get imputed to us the righteousness of Christ. It's given to us. It's applied to us, the righteousness of Christ. And it was the most liberating thing for Luther. It changed how he saw all the scriptures and how he read them. Now, we think about that. And it's tempting for us to think, well, that question, that question itself is a bit outdated, right? How, how can a sinner be saved before holy God? That seems, that sounds very middle ages. It's understandable that Luther would be dealing with that question, but we've kind of moved on from that. We, we as a culture have lowered the ceilings. If the medieval world soared to the heavens and there was this keen sense of divine activity in the world, we've, we've lowered the ceilings. We've boarded up the windows. We live in what Peter Berger calls a world without windows. What the philosopher Charles Taylor says, the imminent frame, right? Things our horizons are what you see is what you get. That's it. That's it. Now, so the idea of a judging god, it's like, eh, don't I don't have, I don't have time for that kind of question. That's just that's old that's old stuff. Michael Horton says, actually, this 300-year attempt to lower the ceilings and get God out of our life is actually evidence that the question still haunts us. We're try, we've been trying for 300 years to relativize the question that is at the core of every human being. How can I be made right with my Creator? And, and here's the thing. Even though we've lowered the ceilings, we still wrestle with our salvation. This is why we work so hard to validate our existence. And like Luther, we'll employ physical torment if we feel as though our project of self-salvation isn't working, consider the person who pursues uh, beauty in an effort to kind of save themselves through their own sense of beauty. They, 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 they do the diets and they do the workouts. And, and if it doesn't work, they may start starving themselves. They may, they may go under the knife for some sort of procedure to enhance their beauty. It happens in work, too. See, the question of our salvation hasn't gone away. It's just been reduced to the imminent frame, to the world that we see, not the world that we don't see. We're not that much different from Luther in his world. Now, as it relates to work, Emmy Netfield, a Google employee, uh, spoke of leaving the company, and it was very hard for her to leave, but she says this about the workplace where she worked. She says, this company, Google, anticipated our every need. They, they had nap pods, massage chairs, Q-tips in the bathroom, a shuttle system to compensate for the Bay Area's dysfunctional public transportation. Google was the Garden of Eden. That's what she says. Google is the Garden of Eden. And she lived in fear of being cast out. And so when her direct manager started making sexual advances and harassing her, she asked him to stop. He persisted. She went to HR. They didn't really do anything about it. And she sort of dealt with it because she said, this is the co- this is the price of receiving the salvation, the benefits, the, the blessings of Google, the Garden of Eden, my workplace, Google. She dealt with it, right? That was the cost. And here's the thing. We look to anything within creation. To save us, it will exact a cost upon our lives. It will eat you alive. The, 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 David Foster Wallace, in a very often quoted speech, he says, everybody, everybody worships. By the way, David Foster Wallace, agnostic, not a Christian, but listen to the insight. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding choice, uh, outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship things in the creation, it'll just eat you up. The beauty demands will take a toll. The the work demands will take a toll. They'll eat you alive. That's why people choose big things to worship, like God or Allah. But I would say this. Actually, that's not even... We need to make a revision there on David Foster Wallace's argument. Because Luther would say... My understanding of God, before I had my kind of epiphany about Romans 1, my understanding of God, a bad understanding of the gospel, made me torment myself. Made me. It was eating me alive. It's not just believing in God, it's having a right understanding of God. The God who saves, what Jesus is saying right here. The God who saves, the God of grace, the Jesus that we see in Scripture. Remember what his call is? For those who are worn out and broken down by all of their earthly pursuits for salvation. His call is this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Now, look again at verse 47 here. It says, he said, Jesus says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Christ says, I came to, ju- ju- to save, not to judge. I'm the physician. I'm the one who saves. I'm the solution, not the problem. And some people will say, you mean if I don't believe in Jesus, I won't go to heaven? I'll be judged by God? No, that's not it. You'll be judged by God because you're under God's judgment. Your sin has, is on you. It infects you. It's a disease. It's a rebellion. It's there. To say that Jesus is the problem is like, it's like you're dying of a disease, and you have to get to the hospital. You have to get to the doctor. And you don't. You don't make it in time. And you die. Did you die because you didn't see the doctor? No, you died because of the disease. That's the problem. Not the do- the doctor is not the problem. Jesus is saying, I am your Savior. I am your Creator. And I am your Savior. I'm the solution. Not the problem. Still, though, still. Look at verse 48. Judgment is coming, he says. Judgment's coming. And this is, this is a hard pill for us to swallow, um, but, but it's, a clear, it's clear as day here in the Scriptures. This is what he says. Look at verse 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus says, right now it's a word of salvation. Come and receive it. All the world, I'm crying to you. I'm pleading. Come to me. Find salvation. But on the last day the word of my gospel the word preached will become a word of judgment to those who reject is what he's saying it's a word of salvation now it's a word of judgment later look at verse 50 he says and i know that i know that the father's commandment is eternal life what what you might trans, some commentators translate it as deep and lasting life What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus is offering a salvation, deep and lasting life, eternal life, as he says. And it's all coming down as a message through the Father. And as I said, this is his last lecture, right? He's just days away from the cross. The event that actually acquires, secures Our salvation. And in the cross, there was there was a there was a great exchange that took place. An exchange. The one who, Jesus, the one who knew no sin, bore the sin of the world, so that we who are in sin might bear the righteousness of Christ, might be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The the, the great exchange means that Christ, who is life, he says, I am life dies so that we who are entrapped in death might find life. Right? The great exchange. The work of Christ meant that the one who was blessed by God the Father received the curse so that we who are under the curse of God might be blessed by the Father. The one who was light was plunged into darkness of death so that we who are in darkness might be plunged into the glory of of his marvelous light. His death atones for sin. It saves us. Life for us meant death for him, and he willingly went to the cross to secure life and life abundant for us. I mean, this, this, is, this is who God is and what he's done for humanity. This is the word to the world. This is Jesus' last lecture, last lecture, right? This is his word. And we don't don't see this kind of God apart from revelation. We really don't. There's been a lot of writing and and scholarship and consideration of the fact that apart from the Judeo-Christian tradition, the revelation of Abraham and the prophets and Christ, and apart from 2,000 years of reflection on the Christian scriptures, the Holy Bible, we don't arrive at this kind of God. We, We just don't do it. This last lecture from, from our creator is, is, a rev, is revolutionary. And it's so surprising. It's so unexpected. It's so sweet. It's a word of salvation. And for those who ignore it, it's a word of judgment. For those who say, ah, foolishness. It's just a, old, it's just a dusty old box. Throw it away. Let's throw it in the trash heap. We have no place for that. It's, their ju- it's, it's judgment, Jesus says. But for those who believe, it's like it's sweet as honey. It's our salvation. It's all it's all we do here is proclaim the glory of the gospel and God's love for us in Christ. Listen to what Michael Reeves says. Jesus brings a revolution. Here it is. Here's the revolution. For all our dreams, our dark and frightened imaginings of God, there is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. That's what it brings. There is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. Jesus is God. And this is what led to the important Nicene Creed statement. Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And no wonder they love this truth. For through it, The sunshine bursts in upon our thoughts of who God is and what all of reality is about. There is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. If you want to know what your creator is like, Jesus says, it's very simple. Look no further than me. I am your creator. Come to me, find salvation, find rest, find deep and lasting life, find eternal life in me. That's his word to the world. That's his last lecture. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for the clarity of this passage, uh, just how succinct it is that it summarizes Christ and his message to the world. Help us to heed it. We pray that you would empower us to live in light of Christ, to follow, um, to follow him in obedience, to exalt him in every area of our lives. We pray. Uh, pray for your spirit to help us do that.